You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. Hey, it's that time of the weekend, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 377 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Some pretty big news in episode 375 with Sergio Guzman of Columbia Risk Analysis has been soaring up the charts. And as I record this, it has moved up into position number 11 out of 376 episodes in just two weeks. So you obviously have an appetite for knowing about what's going on in Colombia and in particular with the Paro Nacional strikes. And of course, this leads me to say well, we must be in day 26 or 27 with no end in sight at the moment. And that brings me to the subject of this episode 377. Uh, senior analyst on Columbia for Crisis Group, Elizabeth Dickinson, will be joining us in the third segment of this show providing us with an incredibly profound and insightful look at what's going on with regards to the Paro Nacional, the government reaction, and of course, where we might go from here as we roll into the electoral cycle for the presidential elections in 2022 here in Colombia. So an excellent show following on really from episode 375. Now, episode 376 was Andres Bermudez about the important news buried by the, the strikes, but the important news that the FARC guerrillas have made that admission that uh, kidnapping was indeed an official policy. Well, that's huge too, and that's pulled in lots of listeners as well. So thank you again for all of you out there who've been tuning in. Please take a look at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com, Columbia Calling, and you can sponsor us for as little as $2 a month and ensure that I can spend more time producing and researching, investigating, and improving Proving the Columbia Calling podcast. So I'm going to leave you now in the capable hands of Emily Hart, who's been doing specifically related to the protests. She's been doing news pieces specifically related to the protests, which I know have been very popular as well. And of course, from her seat in Medellin, she will be giving us the news this week. Then we'll be back with senior analyst for Crisis Group, Elizabeth Dickinson, talking about, well, the current situation of the Parro Nacional protests in Colombia. So don't go away, and thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top news stories for the week of May 24th, 2021. Colombia's protests are now in their fourth week, with more street demonstrations and ongoing roadblocks, including national mass mobilizations last Wednesday, the 19th of May. Thousands took to the streets in anti-government protest, yet again facing a violent state response. The protests, known as the Paro, started on the 28th of April, sparked by an unpopular tax reform bill which has now been sunk. The protests have been further fueled by police violence, which was again focused in the city of Cali this week, with policemen, ununiformed, reportedly shooting live rounds at protesters. 
There have so far been counted 2,905 cases of police brutality during the paro, with more than 50 killed by security agents. There have been 1,264 arbitrary arrests, 21 victims of sexual assault, and nearly 400 people still missing. Protesters are calling for government action, an end to police violence and reform of the security forces, as well as accountability for Diego Molano, the Minister of Defence, who has been in charge of much of the securitized state response to the protests. Last week, the Pardo achieved another of their major demands, the fall of a proposed health reform, which quickly lost its support in Congress and was left without sufficient votes. Groups are also calling for the President to allow the Inter-American Human Rights Commission to enter the country for an investigation. A motion against Molano has been launched in Congress, demanding his removal from office. Amnesty International has made an urgent call for an immediate stop to the US practice of supplying arms, vehicles, ammunition and technologies which are being used against the Pardo protests. They are related to human rights violations in Colombia. The group has verified the use of high-capacity grenade launchers and hand grenade launchers, both manufactured by U.S. company Combined Systems. They call the U.S. role in human rights violations in Colombia outrageous and have discovered new contracts for the USA to continue supplying arms to the Colombian police. Pope Francis has spoken out on Colombia's situation and has pled for a serious dialogue to find a way out of the crisis. President Duque's negotiations with various groups are ongoing, though the High Commissioner for Peace, Miguel Savajos, has now resigned from government, though he was leading the negotiations with the Paro Committee. Meanwhile, the government has been preparing a new tax reform bill, which is soon to be presented. It is reportedly a reform that in essence temporarily suspends the tax benefits it had approved for companies in the 2019 tax law and adds new taxes to the richest. Colombian left-wing rebel leader known as Jesus Santrich has been killed in Venezuela. Santrich was a key figure in peace negotiations but later joined a dissident group and continued fighting. Dissidents said he had been killed by Colombian armed forces, while Colombian defence minister suggested that he had died in a shootout between gangs. One of the most important global ratings agencies, Standard & Poor, has downgraded Colombia's long-term sovereign debt rating to junk. For the country to lose its investment grade, two of the three major ratings agencies would have to lower the country's rating, but the loss of the investment grade would mean the government would find it more expensive to borrow internationally. Colombia will no longer be hosting the Copa America, which is scheduled to kick off in three weeks. Argentina, which was originally going to co-host the football tournament, will take over the complete organisation. This is a blow to Duca's government, which has done everything possible to keep the organisation of the cup, including requesting its delay, a request which was denied this week. And the third wave of coronavirus continues with new daily cases at around 16,000. This figure has held since mid-April. ICUs are at at over 90% capacity in various major cities, including Bogotá, Medellín, Cali, Cartagena, Bucaramanga and Valledupar. Colombia has now suffered 85,000 deaths in a population of 50 million, though 10% of the population has now received at least one dose of vaccine. Those were your top stories for this week. Now back to Colombia Calling with Richard McCall. And we're back. This is the Columbia Calling third segment of episode 377. Uh, Continuing with the vein of form that we're doing, we're trying to cover what's going on in Colombia with regards to not only the COVID virus, but also uh, the protest and unrest that's going on. And our very special guest is a repeat visitor to the Columbia Calling podcast. Elizabeth Dickinson, senior analyst for Columbia for the Crisis Group, will be known to a lot of you, those of you who are Colombianists out there, but it's a real pleasure to have her back on the show. Uh, So welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome back on the Columbia Calling podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here at this particularly important moment. It's particularly important. Last time we had you, you were talking about Kauka, which was, again, in an important moment with all the uh, assassinations of social and community leaders and what was going on down there. And now, one day, we'll get you on to talk about sort of joy and happiness and, <laughs> and so on. But... Let me just say, in the last last few weeks, you've been, well, you've been incredibly busy, of course, because you're analyzing the situation here in Colombia. We're recording this on Friday, or Garten Tuesday, so we're now on day 23, I want to say, or 22 of protests. They don't look like they're going away. Um, we've done a, a podcast with Sergio Guzman, which was very popular on this subject, but you put a thread on Twitter the other day, which was so very clear and so very um, explanatory, Lyra, the, uh, the, the truth. It was, it was incredible. And I, maybe you could put us into context because you've been following these protests very closely. And, and one of the words you used in the first sort of stream in this Twitter was exasperation. And I think it's perhaps the most the accurate word because you've got an exasperation you've got 84 percent of the youth supporting the strike 84 percent but let's go into that a little bit because it is the youth it's not just students yeah so it's a very interesting group that's that's been brought to the street and i think one thing that differentiates it from previous protests and particularly the protests that happened in 2019 is we're seeing a broader sector of the population involved so in 2019 it was very much um, students and labor unions those were sort of the dominant voices on the street i think now you're seeing um, a cross-section of the population um, dominated in the cities by youth but in rural areas there's actually a very wide spectrum of different ages groups involved in the protests and a lot of what you're seeing are people who are unemployed not studying <clears throat> sort of feeling that they have lost all opportunities mm. um, opportunities that were already scarce in 2019 but that have become even more scarce since the pandemic hit let's remember that that Columbus had a really really difficult time over the last year and a, and a bit uh, with the pandemic, not only because of the incredible health impact, but also because of the economic impact of so many repeated on and off shutdowns of the economy. Um, the numbers of people who have been kicked into poverty are just astounding. You look at a place like Cali, where the protests have really taken off, and the numbers of people who have been moved into poverty, um, it's shocking. It's, it's almost a majority of the city now are living in conditions where they can't even provide basic needs for their family. So that's where you get this sort of sense of exasperation, indignation. And those are really the words, the main words that you hear on the street when you ask people their first emotions, their first reasons for being there. Indignation with the situation and the direction of where the country's headed. I, it, it, you, you mentioned Kali, and Kali has been a real flashpoint for some of the, let's say, violence that we see. And, and I would say, you know, there's violence. Uh, and and what, why so much Kali? I mean, do we, did we have indices of high indices of poverty already in Kali, which have just, I mean, grown beyond control? 
I think there's a few different factors that have made Cali sort of the epicenter here. I think, you know, first of all, the, the economic side, which you mentioned, is very clear. So um, Cali has been hit particularly hard by the economic crisis. Um, it used to produce, I think, between 12 and 15 percent of the national uh, product. And now that's down to 10. So that's sort of just reflective of the amount of industrial loss. But huge numbers of job losses as well. Um, but I think even more pointedly than that is what Cali is. Cali is the capital of the Pacific coast. Mm. And the Pacific coast of Colombia is the region of Colombia that has been that has suffered most over the last two or three years from armed conflict, from displacement, from um, um, affectations of, of, of sort of violence and, and displacement. So what you get is, is Cali as sort of a refuge, uh, really, of communities that have experienced very different dynamics of conflict and, and grievance that have been brought together in, in Cali um, as, as a sort of a cauldron of discontent. So you have the urban grievances that you see in other cities as well. Those are things like we want access to education, we want access to dignified jobs, um, you know, we need access to healthcare, particularly in the pandemic. Let me just have a parenthesis here to say that one of the things that the pandemic has done has made it so clear what the stakes are to being a have or a have not in Colombia. The have-nots in Colombia have suffered disproportionately in terms of their hospitalization rates and death rates with COVID. The numbers of people who have died in the lowest three economic brackets are two, three, four times the number of people who have been hospitalized and died in the upper income brackets. This is representative of the fact that people have to go out and work to eat. They don't have the luxury of self-isolating. They don't have the luxury of social distancing and neither do they have access to healthcare when they do become sick. So that's sort of a, a parenthesis, but again, in the context of Cali, then you have on top of that, you have um, migrant and refugee and displaced communities from all across the Pacific coast. Um, you have representation of the indigenous movement in Cauca, which has faced some of the highest rates of selective killings and violence over the last year of conflict um, of any community. And so they bring to the table a whole set of um, experiences from the Colombian situation that are not exclusively about economic grievances. They're not exclusively about violence or about conflict. It's everything. Mm. And you get that diversity and then the clear cut class differences in Cali. Mm. Talking about haves and have nots, in Cali you have rich, rich, rich people. And then you have the poorest of poor and urban poverty in Colombia is to me one of the most shocking um, types of poverty I've ever seen working across the world. It's people who don't literally do not have a roof over their head, who suffer from in neighborhoods that are that are plagued by insecurity, a lack of services, having to pay for everything because there's no public services. You have to pay everyone for water, for the delivery of food, for electricity, for security on your block. You pay the vacuna, as it's called, to as a sort of protection tax to whoever controls the neighborhood. As they say in Colombia, being poor is very expensive. Mm. And I think nowhere is this more true than in Cali, mm. where the costs of being poor are just overwhelming. It's amazing, isn't it? And I, and I think you say as well that therefore the urban issues and the urban poverty has also has collided with the rural poverty then in, in, in Cali, which perhaps doesn't happen so much in other cities to the same extent then, I guess. And, and, um, Cali, obviously, I mean, while we're on Cali, and there's so many other topics, but the the images the other week of 
estratos, of course, you know, Colombian is stratified, but the people in there, down there, self-arming and, uh, let's say, trying to, I guess, shield their barrio, their well-heeled neighborhood from the arrival of the indigenous Mingo. The indig that was pretty shocking for, for anyone, I think. And why, why the rejection of uh, this indigenous, uh, um, kind of mass indigenous protest arriving at Cali? Because Medellin has, has brought them in, you know, and, and maybe they learned from Cali, I don't know. But I found it very bizarre. Yes, I think let, let's let's walk ourselves into that question to understand sort of how we got to that moment. And I think what we've discussed so far are sort of the underlying grievances that are or sort of set off the earthquake, let's say. But then I think what has entrenched the protest and has exacerbated levels of conflictivity within the community has been the government's decision to consider the protest as a security problem. So the response overwhelmingly from the government has been to treat this political crisis as a law enforcement issue, which is to say that they have deployed the police, uh, they have uh, authorized the military to patrol and assist the police, and there's been an excessive use of police violence that's been widely, widely documented. And in Cali, it's been particularly bad. The number of casualties in Cali, if you look at what civil society has tracked, almost 80% of the casualties during these protests have been either in Cali or the suburbs of Cali. Yeah. Which is to say that the, the response there, the security response has been particularly obtuse and hard-handed. So uh, in this context, you get this general distrust and broken relationship with the police that existed before. But simultaneously, you have a government rhetoric that is describing the protesters as vandals, mm -hmm. as being infiltrated by armed groups, as being out set on sort of the destruction of the economy. This language that has been... Um, the word that you often hear here is stigmatizing towards the protesters. The history of Colombia is that that sort of rhetoric has in the past given a blanket justification for citizens who might have a tendency to take law into their own hands. I think what we saw in Cali, and it's also happened in, in cities like Pereira, is a very, very, very alarming opening of Pandora's box in terms of the level of violence that civilians themselves could take into their own hands to defend what they see is their right to, to um, their own sort of stay and wealth. So this particular neighborhood in Cali, as you said, is a well-heeled neighborhood. It had been blockaded, including partly um, on roadblocks by uh, the, in which the indigenous community had participated. I think at first um, there was frustration, but there was tolerance. Uh, after several weeks, that erupted. And given the security crackdown and the language, again, that was coming from the protests that these blockades are illegal, the protests are, are vandals, I think that gave a little bit of a license to these people to come and, and feel like they could take down these blockades by the power of their own hands. Mm. This is a sort of social conflictivity that has existed within the community before. But what we really should be worried about is, is, again, letting it out of the box in a way that is uncontrolled and has gone uncondemned. Let's, let's think about the government reaction to that incident. There has not been a categorical condemnation of what happened, but rather sort of a wishy-washy, well, they were frustrated with the blockade and sort of walking around the problem. No, this is an iteration of violence that Colombia has seen before that we should all be very careful about reopening a new chapter in a conflict. Hmm. 
I, it, that's it, isn't it? And and then the the issue that people felt justified by taking up arms. I mean, that's and of course, you know, I know of a lot of people, or read of a lot of people saying and agreeing entirely with it. And I suppose if you, I suppose, I mean, I, but I can't, I can't justify violence on on either side. That, that that's the truth of it. It's you know, dialogue is a solution. But you you've been touching on a point that I think is so very important, and it it brings us to the the sort of the themes of this this unrest which has kind of consolidated what began as one thing has now become and you mentioned it social justice and a security issue and and when we talk about security that leads into police brutality and you've mentioned the deaths and we i guess the people are are campaigning now is it's time isn't it to separate the police forces from the defense ministry and put it into the interior ministry because it's the, the police force is is national. It's not defending sovereignty. You know, it's it's not defending which. It's a combat force, and now it needs to be a civilian force, right? Well, I think all those are the right questions. I mean, I think what we're seeing now is a reflection of the fact that since the peace accord, we have never had a conversation in Colombia about what does it mean to have an armed forces and a police that is not in a conflict country. What does it mean to have a police that is not targeting, a, you know, a guerrilla movement, a, a sort of enemy within, but is rather intended to protect the civilian population? Reform of the security sector in Colombia, however you want to think about it, whether it's, you know, moving the police to the interior ministry, whether it's it's sort of just restructuring, whether it's creating new protocols, any of that has been untouchable in all of the peace processes and political reform that have taken place over the last 30, 40 years. It has always been the subject that is not touchable. It was not touchable during the 2016 peace agreement. And if you look at that agreement, which is quite comprehensive and addresses a number of the sort of structural issues that have led to conflict in Colombia over the years. The one topic that it doesn't touch is the security forces. This is also true of the 1991 constitution does not touch the reform of the security forces. So this is, I think what we're seeing now is a reflection of that. It's a reflection of the fact that these hard conversations have not been had. The context has changed. Let's be very clear. The reason that we're able to have these protests right now, the reason this is all coming to the surface is because there was a peace agreement. Mm. For 50 years, these issues have existed and grown more and more entrenched. The social injustice, the vast inequality, the frustration with the state's indifference um, to the plight of everyday Colombians. I think this has all existed for 50 years, but it was repressed by the fact that there was always something more urgent. There was always something that the security forces had to deal with that was not that. And in a way, there was a respect for that, in a way, uh, through the society. What the Peace Accord did was it opened up that space. It created a space to bring grievances forward, to organize a civil society, to be civil society without being stigmatized as being left-leaning and aligned with the guerrilla movement. So in a sense, the Peace Accord is a success and the protests are an indication of that. But now we have to have the next conversation, yeah. which is the conversation about what does it mean to have a police force that is protecting the community rather than engaged in a civil conflict? That's fascinating. And I think there's this, there's this issue there when we talk about this, of course, is, is the you know, 1991 Constitution and the 2016 Peace Accord, maybe the huge concession made by that negotiating side was we won't touch you know the the military we won't touch this and then 
the other point there is that, um, uh, of course, you know, the FARC guerrillas, who we haven't mentioned, the peace accord and so on, that was the universal hate figure. That was the universal enemy. Now there is none. So on one side, the, the, let's say the vandals, <laughs> the protesters have become a universal enemy on one side. And on the other side, I would say that the, the, the government <laughs> or what it represents. So we're getting this, I guess, I, I hate saying it, but it's this polarization once again. But as you mentioned, the, the, the peace accord has, has revealed these things. People are now allowed to be you know, socially aware. It's not, we, oh no, you know, we've got to militarize the zone, we've got to militarize this, we've got to, that was the last 50 years. I, I, that's very clear to me now what's happening. So how would you respond? And I'm a, I'm a you know, obviously my listeners know I'm a great proponent of the peace accord. It, it's so very, very comprehensive having studied it. Of course there are errors. Of course there are things that need to be improved, but it's a peace accord. I mean, it's not going to be complete. Um, but I'm curious, though, when you when you hear someone saying, well, this is all brought about by the peace accord, uh, that should never have happened. The people, the people voted it down uh, in that first referendum. And then, of course, it went back to the drawing board and was changed and was changed. You know, the, the points that the opposition brought forward were addressed and changed and then pushed through conflict. Is, what do we say to the people who say, well, it's all, it, it's all the, the fault of the peace accord? I think one of the, my major concerns of this moment and, and, and sort of where we are is the radicalization of, of sort of the political discussion and polarization thereof. Mm. So one of the things that has, it, it was underway before this started, but I think the protests have, or this, this current juncture has the potential to entrench it, is really the there's no other word for it, the radicalization of Colombia's middle and upper classes um, who have seen this strike as really sort of um, a terrifying assault on their economic stability, blocking the roads, um, you know, uh, concerns about uh, lack of supplies, about um, being able to export products, things like this. Um, and, and I think they've the, the risk really is that they really entrench into sort of a right-wing um, political dynamic that could be a long-standing a feature, I think, of Colombian politics going forward. Simultaneously, I think you also have a bit of radicalization on the left, to the extent that um, everything the government does is bad. Every line of the tax reform was a problem. In fact, if you had read the tax reform, part of the tax reform was highly redistributive. It would have given a basic income to a large number of people. So there were actually maybe parts of that tax reform that the left would like if they had read it. But the radicalization of the political sphere on both sides and this polarization has, mean, has meant that the, the level of trust is so limited. Mm -hmm. It's so limited. So I think actually maybe a place to start to start rebuilding trust is actually exactly where the government and the, the strike committee or actually focusing at the moment, which is that before they've agreed to open any substantive negotiations, they're discussing what does it mean to have protocols to protect uh, peaceful protests. Mm. So this is an issue that is concrete and tangible, and it's been clearly brought to the surface during these demonstrations. Clearly, there are not the sufficient protections in place for peaceful protests if we are less than a month into a protest and almost 50 people have been killed including one police officer, more than a thousand injured, according to defense uh, ministry statistics I've just seen today. So this is, is, is a blanket problem. There is violence in these protests, period. Yeah. 
we need a more constructive approach to this. It's something concrete. It's something that both sides can sort of grasp onto. And if it, if it is successful in reducing the levels of violence in the demonstrations, I think it could be, um, it's, it's a first step towards a way forward. Uh, this is a long path, though. Um, and I, I think, again, to emphasize, the levels of trust are so low. What would be useful and what we really haven't seen would be conciliatory, conciliatory rhetoric from both sides. I think the government in particular has been very slow to recognize the gravity of this crisis, recognize the profundity of the problems that Colombians are facing in their day-to-day life, and to really have some humility and empathy in understanding why people might be protesting at this moment and the difficulty that they're in. Well, there's been none of that, uh, not not from the government, not from the president, not from the minister of defense, not, well, not from the, and, and uh, the, well, now the new uh, minister for the exterior, uh, foreign minister, Marta Lucia Ramirez, who was the vice president. I mean, that uh, editorial she wrote is, it's, I, I almost felt it was saber rattling. The first thing she did was, you know, you, you, she said it was sort of, unviable or i mean i I just i thought it was very very strange but i guess from a position of strength having just gone into the role she she needed to show that but there was no there was no conciliatory voice at all whatsoever in my what i what i found very interesting in that last last uh, um last uh element you were talking about is that the radicalization not only of the right and of course all of us in colombia with family we all have a uh, a very right wing tier somewhere. <laughs> They're all, you know, and and then and then you say the radicalization of the left, and it doesn't matter what the government will bring forward; they'll just try and push it down. I think at the moment, it's. You know, I feel that there is a momentum. I don't know for how long, with the uh, with the protesters at the moment. You know, the, especially internationally, being co- the coverage, and I want to single out DWTV Deutsche Welle. It's because they, they and they are really covering these things and but i feel that the, the the left i mean the hard left the government could put up a very progressive measure and they would just push it around saying it's not enough uh, do you feel that, that that we're getting to that stage as well with the well first the the tax reform the health uh, reform uh the copa america the the you know the, the resignation of the the treasury the, i mean it's it's a long list of things already I think one of the reasons that we're seeing this tendency at the moment is because of where we are in the electoral cycle. So Colombia has presidential elections in in exactly a year, um, actually a year and eight days. So at the moment, I think one of the challenges for the opposition is that being seen to negotiate with this government, which is very weak and which has clearly responded in a way that was not ideal to the protests, is a political liability. So it is a political liability to be constructive at this moment, um, which is very dangerous. It's very dangerous for both sides. It's politically dangerous for, uh, it's it's a political liability for this government to give concessions because President Duque is extremely weak within his own party. He has very little support within Centro Democratico, his his party, uh, for making concessions. So that means that any concessions he makes come with a political cost, potentially for the next election. Simultaneously, I think the opposition to be seen with meeting a government that is so unpopular um, and particularly to be seen making concessions to such a government um, is really a little bit of electoral death. So this is a very difficult moment to to surmount because we don't have a lot of leadership 
on any side who's willing to do something difficult in terms of politically difficult that would have a cost for them in the next election or you know going forward. I think that's really what's missing. That's what's missing at this moment is some sort of leadership, some sort of uh, political courage. And we haven't seen it from either side. Well, that's it, isn't it? When we when you talk about the lack of leadership and political courage, well, it's all politics now in the, in the play for the election. Every single decision made is with an eye on 2022. I guess it's, it's May, isn't it? The first round, uh, and then June, the second round, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, if we go to a second round, I've been, I've been curious about this because I get the feeling that the, uh, the Centro Democratico and the, let's say the conservative side of, of the government are slowly or, or rapidly, whichever way you think, throwing Duque, President Duque, a bit under the bus, you know, to, to distance themselves from him. And definitely, you know, when you look at some of the more outspoken on the right, they are still um, managing to, uh, and uh, manipulating, I'd say, the speech to, to ensure that they are the party or the side strong on law and order. Uh, whereas, and then on the left... I mean, Petro was out on Wednesday mar marching and has made declarations, which are usually inflammatory. But in another situation, he has been far more outspoken, would you say? Or do you, I mean, do we think that he's been measured as well? <laughs> this is a difficult question to answer. I'm not sure that I have a great response. I think that everyone is being very careful at the moment. And, and um, of course... <laughs> Caution in some ways is warranted, right? Because this is a very delicate situation. And so political pronouncements from any side actually could have a very concrete effect on the ground. So in a sense, uh, caution is warranted. Um, however, as I said, I mean, that leads us to a position where very few people are willing to actually take hard decisions. Mm. So here's um, another example of, of where we run into this problem um, is at a local level. So um, I want to really highlight that this, of course, these are urban protests, but they're also very much rural protests. And this is something that differentiates what's happening now, that there are strike committees and there are protest movements in almost every department of Colombia, including very rural areas, people who are coming from their farms, you know, moving together to small and mid-sized cities to put forth their demands. So those demands have the, you know, they run the full gambit. And many of them, frankly, should be addressed at a local level because many of them are things like I need to lower the or, you know, we trucking union from a Caqueta want to lower the, the fee on uh, toll roads. OK, this is not an issue that the president needs to deal with. This is an issue that the, you know, the local administration and the highway, you know, the Ministry of Transport can, should be able to deal with. However, because of where we are politically at this moment, because the government is so unpopular, because local mandate holders have traditionally been weak in Colombia, which is a very centralized country. Um, I think you also have a reluctance on a, on a mayoral level and a governor level to take decisions or to, to really deal with the protests in a substantive way. Substantive way. Of course, there are exceptions to this. There are author local authorities who have been very active and, and, and sort of tried to mediate and, and, and make progress and, and sort of find solutions. But as a rule, I would say that the general tendency has been for local mandate holders to kick it up the chain and say, well, this isn't in my hands. It's a part of the, you know, you have to negotiate with the national government because I don't control that. 
And that, again, is a lack of political courage because they're not willing to sort of step into that void. Um, they would rather put it on an unpopular government to deal with some of the issues that, frankly, probably should be discussed at a local level. And I think that's, at, that's adding to the, to the gridlock, right? Because then you arrive at a national negotiating agenda that has individual points from 32 departments of Colombia. I mean, tell me how you expect to find something concrete in that negotiation that and that and that, that leads back to the problem always is this the government's desire and it's not just this government and we're not just protesting this government it goes back as you've mentioned before the 50 odd years plus but the government's desire to to sort of treat it with an umbrella universal uh you know, solution to everything kind of like when they you know after the november 2019 protests when it was the big grand uh, was a grand conversacion nacional and which i believe there are only minutes to the meetings there, there weren't actually any solutions i mean you'll know better than me but i don't i haven't seen anything that came out of that and i think that might be part of it but when you talk about the rural and the urban, I read the other day is that over 500 municipalities in Colombia had some kind of demonstration on the Wednesday. I mean, that's huge. That for me is huge. Even, you know, I know a lot of small places where it gets too hot and the people won't go out. They even went out, you know, that's it. There were people out. So that's a big deal. This issue of kicking it back up the chain towards the presidency is it's a, isn't it? It's a reaction as well to the centralized government. The government can solve everything. It is no regional power. And think about how far as well. Some, you know, when you, if you are in the extreme of a department, yeah, it's extreme Cauca to to get your news to Cali or extreme Bolivar you know, right down in the south with the illegal mining and the ELN groups down there in places like Mico Almalo and and Morales. That has nothing to do with Cartagena, you know, that's more Cesar, it's more Antioquia, it's more, but of course they have to go via Cartagena and Cartagena then will say, well, yeah, you know, they don't, I mean, Cartagena's obviously concern is Cartagena. <laughs> I mean, that's, let's be, let's be honest about it. So I'm, I'm really, I mean, how in, people don't want to, won't want to address these issues because it's so delicate for an electoral cycle. We still don't know exactly who's running. We've got, all got ideas. You know, we, we, can, we can make educated guesses. Someone will come up from left field. Uh, I'm not saying left wing, left field, uh, that we, we perhaps didn't consider. Um, those of us sitting here as, I mean, I'm immigrant resident, I'm hoping that something will draw towards the center a little bit. I'm hoping, that's my personal, rather than either right or far left. Um, but what, I mean, in a perfect world, the government would be, or any government in Colombia would start talking about addressing the underlying issues of basic human rights, uh, access to water, access to education, being able to get your, your, your goods out to a highway to sell them. I mean, what, is, is this what you feel from your, your standpoint? I mean, tell us a little bit. I think this is the solution to this is going to have to be layered and it's not going to come in one fell swoop, which I think will be the, the disappointment of everyone. Um, but it's, it's simply impossible to address the breadth of grievances and, and the variety of grievances in a way that's going to be um, a sort of quick win. However, having said that, I think that there are two very clear 
let's say, buckets of concern where we need to see concrete gestures of confidence soon or we start to go down a very dangerous spiral of escalation. The first gesture needs to be in some sort of accountability for what's happened with the police behavior in response to the protest. This is something that people are demanding on the streets and everyone is demanding it. I was in some of the protests a few days ago here in Bolota and, you know, across the board, protesters will tell you, we are on the streets until they dismantle the riot squad, um, which is the police force that's been most involved in, in, in some uh, sort of most documented, let's say, uh, by uh, um, in, in some of these abusive incidents. And it's usually in response to protests. So that I think you have to do something on the security side. Um, we I can imagine a lot of different ways that it could go. And, and I don't frankly want to speculate about what would be the most effective way to do it, but the government has to unequivocally condemn what has happened and find a way to hold people accountable. That has not happened. And it's frankly very clear steps to take, but they haven't happened. The second sort of bucket, I think, of of gestures that's needed and and a longer-term grievances, and these are frankly the ones that will take um, years to address, are these social economic ones. You need to have some sort of um, government and official recognition, starting with their rhetoric, but then bleeding into their policy uh, of empathy towards the situation that Colombia finds itself in, towards the difficulty of putting food on the table, of, of you know, uh, protecting your family, of, of ensuring some sort of future, of having access to any sort of education, let alone a good education. These sorts of issues are on the table and we need at least some sort of recognition that they're valid. Now, a clear way to do this, um, both in the cities and particularly in the rural areas, would be to sort of kick up the emphasis on the peace accord. The peace accord holds the roadmap to many of these issues. And in some ways, the frustration, particularly outside of the major cities that we're seeing is linked directly to the expectations that were raised in the peace accord and that haven't been met. So it's not that anyone expected Colombia to be transformed in a matter of years, but it's the political messaging and the extent of political will that's being devoted to these problems, which is not sufficient at the moment. And instead, in fact, the official rhetoric has been to condemn the accord, say everything is the fault of the accord, all the security problems, it's too big, it's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. We have, you know, we don't have money for these programs that we promised you. And, and that is so uh, that is so offensive to people who, for example, voluntarily eradicated their coca crops, their sustenance, and we're expecting the government to help them have alternative livelihoods. And four years later, they're still waiting for technical assistance, let alone sort of projects that would restart their lives, projects that will take three, four, five years, by the way, to be productive. So this is an insult. You're asking people to rip up their livelihoods and then wait 10 years in order to feed their children. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that brings people to the streets and makes them so frustrated. You need a shift of approach. It has to start with the rhetoric, then it has to move to the concrete. And again, to emphasize, this is not happening in one full soup. I don't know a single example of any country in the world that has solved all of this level of problems in one negotiation. So we need to also lower the expectations on the street a little bit Um, in that regard. There isn't going to be sort of one massive change that transforms the country. Um, But 
they do need to be concrete gestures. Otherwise, as I said, we really get entrenched in the cycle of distrust, escalation, and the violence will only increase. This is my concern, is, as you say, we were, I, we, uh, the President Santos's government sold peace, as you know, and, and it wasn't, I don't feel it was explained that it was going to take several generations, you know, it was, again, I think that's partially why the, uh, I mean, there's loads of reasons why the, the first uh, referendum, I mean, that referendum collapsed or, you know, went went the wrong way for peace let's say um in that it just it, it things weren't explained to the public is that this is going to take time being you know peace does not immediately mean that your bank account is going to be full peace does not immediately mean peace this is an accord this takes time and that's one of those big big worries i have is that again the protesters are out there saying well we're gonna you know knock this one down and we're gonna get this one sent out but it it takes time and i think there will be outrage i don't i don't have the specific facts as to what the concession the government made towards education recently was it was a good move but Again, it's going to take time. Perhaps you could clarify what the government what the government sort of conceded on on, on education. Was it for lower stratos of, of, of people? Yeah, so one of the demands from the student community particularly has been more affordable access to education. So what the government promised, although it's very clear, very unclear how they would be able to deliver it both financially and logistically, um, is what they call matricula zero, which is basically no tuition for the lowest three income brackets of society. This, however, would be for public universities. <clears throat> and, and speaking with students in the last few days, I think one of the frustrations with this announcement is that there's major problems of access to public education in the university system. Um, there's a limited number of spots. Uh, many regions of the country don't even have a, a public university. So for example, if you're from Guaviare or if you're from uh, you know, departments where there just isn't a public university, uh, that access is, is, is sort of not, is not meaningful to you because you won't be able to get the spot, let alone to qualify for, for some sort of reduced tuition. So I think it's a move, but I think one of the, one of the problems or the reasons that the concessions that the government has made so far have not been as effective as I think they expected in calming down the street is because they aren't negotiated. The government just sort of comes out of its own thinking, its own private meetings and offers these concessions from nowhere. And no one is warned, no one is consulted. Uh, and, and there's this concession that appears. Um, but you could do the same concession. And if you had discussed it beforehand, it would be two, three times more effective. But there's this sense that the two sides are talking past each other. Yeah. And you can see this even in the language that they're using to address one another. They have a different vocabulary to address the situation. And that has really, I mean, it, it's really at that level. There is no way that these two sides feel like they can exist in the same universe of problems and find a solution to them. So this is really a, an, an empathy crisis across the board. You know, we need to see across these two sides or, or, or you simply can't find concerted solutions uh, you know, uh, solutions that are that are discussed and, and have input from, from the sectors that they need to have. This is empathy. It, it would come back to things. Wouldn't it be great for the government to, 
I would say, leave Bogota to negotiate and to, to, to well, dialogue in other parts of the country to show that they are, I mean, aware, <laughs> you know, let's say that a different part of the country that's not Bogota-centric exists then. I mean, because that's, that's been one of the overwhelming feelings that I get. It's like, we we get another pronouncement from just outside the gates by the, of the Palacio Nariño by the uh, what the the strike committee, and then you get a you know a nice pronouncement by the government from the steps or something. But there doesn't seem to be anything to sort of reaching the ground. That's you know we are humble. <laughs> we are there's no humility here at all. And as you talk about empathy and. I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, do you think that this is something the government might do in coming months? I think it was shocking and, and completely um, otherworldly that the president did not go to Cali immediately when this crisis began. He should have been there within 48 hours of everything erupting. Um, he went very briefly about a week and a half ago, finally, after pressure from within his own party, um, to sort of show up. And it's that, it's showing up. There does need to be this effort to show up. And like you said, I mean, Colombia is extremely centralized, but this is part of the concern that I think protesters are raising with the entire class system in Colombia. There's this idea that these problems exist outside of a world that affects us, the ruling class. And this sense of indifference and, you know, lack of understanding of what it really means to live in this country for the vast majority of people, that disconnect has just been amplified by the inability for the government to show up in this situation. Yeah, I think so. And and I did see a headline in The Guardian recently, of course, got class war. I, I don't want to put class war down, but I would say class, yes, um, the the people unaware of the reality as you're saying now finally finally and i won't take up much more of your time finally how do you see then and you have to speculate you don't get away with it how do you see the the next 12 months then i unfortunately am a bit pessimistic in terms of the ability to see a real resolution to this before the presidential election because of all the reasons that we discussed so i think we we might see um, sort of continued instability. It will ebb and flow, I have no doubt. Mm. But I do think that the you're not going to see a resolution to these issues even begin until you have some sort of clarity on the, on the political um, system. I think there are many risks of this that perhaps both sides have, uh, I think both sides would be wise to absorb. Mm. I think one of the major concerns uh, for us as crisis group, we're an organization that focuses on armed conflict, is that the sort of quote-unquote bad actors take advantage of the situation. So in rural areas particularly, um, going into, beginning with the pandemic really, and, and, and then accelerating again um, in the early months of 2021, uh, the control that armed groups have on, on large parts of the territory is really quite alarming. And what the, the sort of chaos and instability and uncertainty provides is for them is an opportunity. So um, armed groups haven't been motivating these protests. Uh, they haven't been involved in organizing them. They have no role in the social movement that is has been brought to the table. However, 
they might be the eventual winners of that situation, particularly in areas where they have high levels of influence. Why? Because they're able to take advantage of the situation while the government is distracted. Um, that to me is a very serious concern because we could end up losing many of the fragile gains that we have seen since 2016 in terms of stability um, and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, all these things that we like to talk about, state presence, um, trust in institutions, and, and just day-to-day security. That, I think, is, is one major concern. The other major concern, the longer this goes on for us as crisis group, is the polarization, and particularly the, the risk of violent polarization. Again, we discussed that you saw the beginning of this Pandora's box opening with sort of civilians taking justice into their own hands in incidents in Cali and Pereira. Um, Let's not fool ourselves. That is something that can be much worse. Um, And we need to be very conscious of it. And again, I think that the the gravity of that situation has not been absorbed by anyone, particularly uh, within the government to to come up with some sort of um, clear response. Those are the concerns and those are the risks that I think we face if we continue to be in this, this situation of instability. I hope that there's political courage from somewhere, from preferably many different sides to come together to find some sort of way forward. I don't see it at the moment and I, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that I see indications soon that will make me more optimistic. I Yes, I'm, I'm with you on that. And for those of you who can't see the, the YouTube video, I've just been visited by my child. I'm um, sorry about that, Elizabeth. These things happen in life. <laughs> These things happen. Um, but especially in vir- the virtual world. Thank you so much for that o- overwhelming uh, conclusion, which was so very complete. And I fear as well. I am, I'm, you know, I don't... I've been, always been very bullish on Colombia, especially having business here, but I'm concerned at the moment, I think is the word. Uh, I don't want to say I'm, I, you know, the concern obviously comes from a negative point, but that's from when you, you know, read everything and listen and weigh it up and talk to people on the streets. You know, it's like, this is, this is a worry and this is... So I, you know, thank you so much for your time because I know you're incredibly busy right now. I know you are, and and, and of course, and in the background, I saw your son <laughs> wandering. So it's it's the family reality of what's going on. Now I want to lighten things up and be somewhat somewhat trivial. I promised my listeners, two listeners, that they can have. Well, I will send. I got a, a whole bunch of protest posters down at the Pedagogica University the other day because the graffiti artists were out and they were giving their posters out. And I, and I actually uh, know DJ Lou reasonably well. Anyway, they've given me two posters and I'm going to give them out to two lucky listeners. And so I don't know how many people are going to get in touch, but there's been, there's been some popularity. So you, uh, Elizabeth, can you please, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to, go and say that maybe 20 people will get in touch. Could you choose two numbers uh, between one and 20? And then those numbers you choose will, will correspond with the numbers of, let's say, the people who, who, who write in on, let's do it on Twitter, at Columbia Calling. So DM, direct message me on Twitter. And if your number whatever, Elizabeth says, and number whatever, you will get the poster. So please choose two numbers. Seven and 19. Seven and 19. So if you are number seven in the DMs or number 19 in the DMs, you have the right 
first come, first serve. There's one by DJ Lou and there's one by someone else I don't know. But they're both, I put the pictures up online on Facebook and on Twitter. So there they are for those interested parties. Let me say thank you so much. Sorry to end so trivially, but uh, thank you so much for your time and, and for your insights, which I recommend everyone out there follow Elizabeth on Twitter because the threads that she puts up about what is going on in Colombia are so very clear and explain really what everything's going on so thank you again and one day i'll get you back on and we can talk about you know progress and success <laughs> so we'll let's do it <laughs> elizabeth dickinson who is a senior analyst on, on columbia for crisis group uh, it's been really an incredible conversation i've been richard mccall here for the Columbia Calling Podcast, episode 377. Next week, we'll probably change up a little bit and do something perhaps not unrest-related in Colombia and do something else. But let me say thank you again to all my listeners and all my Patreon supporters, everybody on Twitter who's followed us and has been, you know, the last week with Andres Bermudez talking about the importance of the FARC's admission of kidnapping and the week before that, an overview of the... Uh, demonstrations with Sergio Guzman of Columbia Risk Analysis. It's been great. Thank you again and goodbye.